WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of City Talk. And this evening, we have the pleasure and honor of welcoming the commissioner for the Mayor's Commission for Persons with Disabilities, Ms. Kristen McCosh. And Commissioner, it's nice to have you here and uh, able to sit down and chat for a little while. Let's talk about an, a great event that you went to uh, the early part of February. You were privileged to go to the Super Bowl in Atlanta, and I want to hear all about that. Well, thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me on your show today. And I'm glad you're starting me off with a softball question. <laughs> so, It'll get better as it goes along. Oh, good. Okay. So, yes, I was uh, privileged enough to go to the Super Bowl and see the Patriots win their sixth Super Bowl in my lifetime. Uh, we got tickets uh, sort of last minute. I went online and searched for ADA seating, and I found one set of tickets left. So my husband and I, my husband's a huge Patriots fan, and he's always said he wanted to go to a Super Bowl. So this was pretty affordable as far as Super Bowls go. It was pretty close. It was in Atlanta. And uh, the tickets were pricey, but we figured it's a once-in-a-lifetime bucket list yep. uh, event. So we said, we'll just go for it. So we bought tickets about a week and a half before the game. We flew down on Friday, and we had a hotel that was really accessible. We took the trains all over Atlanta. They're um, they're sort of like subways, but they're not as um, as widespread as they are in Boston. But they got us everywhere we needed to go. So on Saturday, we went to the NFL Experience. I guess they have that at every Super Bowl, but it's a whole. They set up a whole area. It's like a convention center with um, you can do you can throw um, passes, you can do touchdowns, oh, you can wow. meet players, you see footballs. Uh, we saw the college. Uh, sports, it's College Football Hall of Fame and Heisman Trophies. We saw, um, we met Governor Baker. He was at a wow. pre-Super Bowl party, so I got to chat with him for a few minutes and also saw Christian Fourier. Wow. Uh, we went to the Atlanta Aquarium, so we really got to see the sights in Atlanta. Also the Olympic Stadium from the Olympics. I think they were 1996 in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, the highlight of the weekend was, of course, the Super Bowl. So we had really accessible seats. Um, the stadium was beautiful. I believe it's fairly new. I'm not sure what year it was built, but it's it was definitely um, fully accessible and really nice and clean. And one thing I can say about Atlanta, they were definitely prepared for the Super Bowl. From the time we landed in the airport to every place we went out in public, you saw people holding signs welcoming the crowds to the Super Bowl, um, people just walking around asking if you needed information. They were fully prepared. Also, I heard behind the scenes, uh, security-wise, they were really prepared for anything. So kudos to Atlanta. They did a great job. But anyway, the game, did you watch the game? Oh, I'm yes. Assuming? Oh, okay. are you kidding? Now, what did you think of it? Because a lot of people have different feelings about it, where it was so low scoring. I thought I thought it was kind of dull. Yeah. But as I, long as the right team won. Yeah. I have to say, I thought it was a little slow at the beginning, but it was really tense when you were there because it was only one score between the two teams. So. Yeah. If, um, if they had come back at any moment and scored, we would have been down. So um, it was very tense, but um, it, was, it was really exciting to be there. And it was like nothing I've ever done before and probably never will do again. What's it like watching an outdoor game indoors? Ah, that's, that's a good question. Um, they had the dome open for the beginning because they did a flyover from 
some military jets, and then they had the uh, they closed the dome, so the dome was closed for the game. It is definitely a different experience than at Foxborough Gillette Stadium, which I love Gillette Stadium. That's also very accessible, and it's uh, I was glad it was a closed dome because I get really cold, and I wasn't looking forward to sitting outside <laughs> in February. So I enjoyed it. But one funny story I heard afterwards. I don't know if you heard this. But um, Bill Belichick is such a student of the game that he was asking the officials um, how long it took for the dome to close. Did you hear this story? No, I don't think so. Okay, so the dome was open and it was going to be closing as the game started. So he wanted to know how long it took for the dome to close because he was trying to figure out the wind direction, whether they should take the ball or um, give the ball to the other team to start the game. To, all depending on like the wind direction with the dome being open. Right. I mean, that's how detailed he gets. So um, that was just a funny little story I heard. But it was just amazing to see Tom Brady in action. Mm-hmm. I mean, he probably only has two or three Super Bowls left in him. So um, we got to see him while, while he's still in action and still at his best. He was just phenomenal. If they get into the next two or three Super Bowls. Oh, well, that was a joke. But, let's yeah, put it let's that hope. way. <laughs> but, right. um, yeah, go ahead. Let's go, let's go back. Tell me about October 18th, 2010. Ah, that was my the day I was appointed by Mayor Menino. I, um, I came from a disability advocacy background. I had worked I had worked for the city of Boston previously. I worked for the Boston Public Health Commission doing health care access. And then I worked in public health at a public health initiative in Boston. Then I went to Spalding Rehab Hospital working for the Greater Boston Chapter of the National Spinal Cord Injury Association. I did peer visits with people who had new spinal cord injuries because I've had a spinal cord injury for over 30 years. So I try to get um, new patients up to speed on you know, going back to school, going back to work, living in the community, and just getting to know their bearings now that they have a disability. So I had been working and volunteering in the community for a long time. And I was mentioned for the job to Mayor Menino, I guess, and I got to meet him personally. And he offered me the job. So I was really beside myself. I was terrified and honored and excited. So he appointed me as the Disability Commissioner and ADA Title II Coordinator for the city. So it's a big role, and it's something I love. I actually feel like I get paid to do work that I love to do, so it's not even like a job. Yep, I felt the same way about that and about radio, too. Yep. I can remember I'd meet a celebrity or something, and I'd think to myself, my God, I'm getting paid to interview this guy. I feel the same way every day on my job. So I I know exactly where you're coming from. All right, uh, compound question. One of the things that you did was reinstitute an advisory board. Tell us about your advisory board and also the difference between that and the commission staff. Okay, great question. So there's a state law in Massachusetts that authorizes cities and towns to appoint a disability commission which is a volunteer group of residents who work on informing the town administration or city administration about access and inclusion issues of people with disabilities. So the law was enacted in 2009. So the advocates in Boston um, had recognized that the city hadn't had a disability commission for many years. We did have one in the 70s and 80s, but it had gone defunct. And there was no state law, really. That was just a city council ordinance. So when this new state law passed, the advocates said, oh, this is a great time to reestablish a commission. So it actually predates me by about a year. The, uh, the residents, um, advocates with disabilities, approached the mayor and the previous disability commissioner and worked really hard to get this commission established. 
So the volunteer commission, we called our commission advisory board, and then we call my office the Mayor's Commission for Persons with Disabilities. And the big difference is that the, the advisory board volunteers, uh, so they inform me of things that are going on in their community, their neighborhoods, different things they know about because they have lived experience with disabilities. We have people who use wheelchairs, people who are blind, people who are deaf, people with mental health issues. Uh, we have a wide range of disabilities and also people from a wide range of neighborhoods. So they inform me and that in turn allows me to develop an agenda, do strategic planning, and make sure I elevate these issues to my cabinet chief and also to Mayor Walsh. All right, and the commission itself. What we do, well, my main role is to be the ADA Title II coordinator for the city, and that is a mandate under the ADA. Every city or town with more than 50 employees must appoint an ADA Title II coordinator. ADA Title II covers city and local governments, and that means I'm responsible for ensuring that everything the city does is accessible, which is a huge responsibility, <laughs> and it's a huge amount of work, because when you think of it, we have to ensure that all the sidewalks and streets are accessible and compliant with the ADA, but also uh, public buildings like the libraries, the schools, city hall, and then programs. Um, we have to make sure that every person who wants to attend a program in Boston is able to access the building physically and also access the materials, whether they need something printed in Braille or they need an audio description or they need an American Sign Language interpreter. We have to work with the different city departments to make sure that they all know how to make those accommodations. All right. I know one of the things that you've done as far as improvements in City Hall is the city council chambers. Tell us about that and anything else that you've been able to accomplish as far as inside the building itself. Well, I have to say, the City Hall building is my actual nemesis. It was built in 1968, I believe, and it was planned and built just before the accessibility building codes came into law. They, uh, the accessibility building codes are run by the Massachusetts Architectural Access Board, and they were instituted in 1969, I believe. So City Hall was built just previous to these accessibility codes being required. So because of that, the building is very inaccessible. In fact, the mayor of Boston at the time it was built used a wheelchair, and there are rumors that he couldn't even get into the building when it opened. So they had to do a bunch of uh, scrambling around to make sure they could make some uh, access for, for the mayor. That was Mayor Collins, I think. Yeah. I believe it was. That was yep. before my time. but yep. I um, interviewed him once. Oh, okay. Actually. Yeah. So anyway, um, because of the basic inaccessibility of the building, the city council chamber has always also been inaccessible. The way it was previously set up was that you would come into the chamber, and there are stadium seats around three sides, so the audience members can sit and watch the council. The council seats, um, the desks that the councilors sit at, are on a sunken floor. So in order to testify, you have to walk down three or four steps to reach the podium. Well, if you're in a wheelchair or you can't use steps, what you would have to do is walk outside of the chamber, go around through the back offices of the councilors, and come out onto the chamber floor using a ramp that was non-compliant. So the city was aware of this, but um, it really came to our attention when a woman in a wheelchair came to testify and she slipped off the ramp. So she was okay, but it really you know, called our attention to the fact that we need to change this. So to give credit to Mayor Walsh and public facilities and property management, not only did they 
install a compliant ramp immediately, but they sought out uh, money to improve the design and do a whole re reconstruction of the council chamber. So that took about eight months to complete. It was done in 2017, I believe. So now when you come into the chamber, it's a level floor. There's no drop-down steps. All the podiums are accessible with microphones that are accessible. They changed out all the furniture in the council so that all the desks are ADA compliant and people who want to testify can get under the desk. They also put in a section of seating for people in wheelchairs so you don't have to stick on the aisle if you want to attend a hearing. And uh, one of the biggest things they did back in maybe 2013, 2014, was they instituted captions, uh, open captions on all the city council hearings so that if you're deaf or hard of hearing, you can attend a chamber meeting, a city council meeting in person in the chamber and follow along the meeting on big screen TVs with captions. All right. Let's go back. I uh, forgot to ask you a little more about the advisory board. Uh, tell us a little bit more about it. How many members there are, when people meet, when you meet, uh, who can come to the meetings. And uh, I know there's a way to, to uh, be involved with the meetings even if you're not there. So why don't you tell us a little about that? Well, that's a great segue because um, one thing that I did since I've been the commissioner is um, the state law calls for a nine-member commission, but we had nine members from time to time. But I really wanted to increase the representation because we have a lot more than nine neighborhoods. There are a lot more than nine disability lenses, uh, disability types. Um, so I really wanted to increase that. So what I did was I asked Mayor Walsh if we could start a home rule petition, which means it's a basically a local law that is different from the state law, to increase our board to 13 members. So it was approved. We work with our intergovernmental relations office and with the state and with the city. So we that was approved. So now we have 13 members appointed by Mayor Walsh. We have a full board now. We've had that for about six months for the first time in several years. So we have neighborhoods represented from Roxbury to South Boston, um, Jamaica Plain, Dorchester, we have a, a wide variety of neighborhoods represented and also several disabilities, like I said before. But one thing that happened when we increased the board from nine members to 13, ironically, was we no longer fit in the space where we met. We used to meet on the ninth floor in the BPDA boardroom, which is a, a fairly good-sized room. But we, we have our meetings. Um, we meet once a month. I know you asked about that. Yep. So we meet on the third or fourth Wednesday every month at 5.30, from 5.30 to 7.30. Mm -hmm. And our meetings are also broadcast live on TV and on the web with captions. But because we had increased our members by four up to 13, we couldn't all fit at the desk to be in view of the camera for the taping of the show. So we couldn't meet any longer in the BPDA boardroom. So I really put my thinking cap on and tried to think of where we could find a space where we could fit 13 residents, some of whom were in wheelchairs, some have guide dogs, um, one needs an ASL interpreter, so he needs sight lines to be able to see the interpreter. It was a really complex situation. So I reached out to my cabinet chief and the city council president to say, can we hold our meetings in the city council chamber? Because there are 13 city councilors, so ironically, there are 13 desks. And it would be just perfect. It's nice and spacious. It's all accessible. 
the public can attend and be comfortable and feel welcome. So um, they, after several months of negotiating like terms, because apparently I didn't know this, but the city council really controls the city council chamber. It's basically their space in City Hall, and they really don't lend it out to other departments. So they did make an ADA accommodation at my request to let us hold our meetings there. So now we meet in the very beautifully refurbished and ADA compliant city council chamber on the third or the fourth Wednesday every month. And it's just a beautiful space. So we welcome all members of the public to attend. And if they don't go there, can they still, I, I know when I left, you could access the meetings over the phone. Can you still do that? Yes, on every agenda. The agenda is posted at least 48 hours before the meeting. So there is call-in information. You can call in. You can call in and just listen. You can give comments during public comment. Um, there are many ways to participate, either by phone, in person, on TV, or watch it online. And you can also go back and watch the archived meetings if you don't watch them live as they're happening. And if people need a special accommodation, how far in advance must they let you know and how do they do that? Well, again, the information is on our agenda, but they can always call our office and they should let us know as soon as possible because the more time, the better. But we ask for it to be at least um, three days before a meeting. All right. Do, do you want to uh, discuss some of the, uh, shall we say, diverse backgrounds of some of your board members? Um, well, we try to, um, you know, look for people who can bring a different lens, a different perspective. So we do try to look at different um, people who have backgrounds in um, different areas of work, different um, people who come from different countries, people who speak different languages. That's always a plus. Um, currently, we have one board member who is speak who uses ASL as his main communication. So we primarily have an ASL interpreter at the meetings, but if someone wanted to come and needed their own or needed an individual ASL interpreter, they should definitely give us as much notice as possible. Mm -hmm. And what, what are some of the, the current things that the board, that the advisory board brings for discussion? Oh, okay, so we, since we got the new board expanded and we have a really active, committed group, um, at times we've had people leave and we've had different levels of interest and um, commitment, but now we have a really active, committed group. So the way we structure the meetings currently is we always have one presentation from a city department. So for instance, last month we had intergovernmental relations. That's the department in City Hall that works with um, state government and the city council and the federal government. So they kind of work on initiatives and figure out who to contact at the state level, the federal level, and the city level. So we go through them for all our interactions with the state, the city, and the feds. So they came to the board to talk about how the board can work with the state legislature, how they can work with the city council, and how they can work with different federal departments. So that was a really helpful training for the board members because they really want to get involved in legislation and policy. So they learned a little bit about how to do that. So in addition to a city department, we also have uh, a development uh, do a presentation. So far, we've had um, developers from the Boston Garden. They're doing a new expansion to increase ADA seating and add an elevator. So that was a great presentation. That was um, back in the winter. We've had um, the MBTA give a presentation on better bus routes. It's a new initiative they're doing to create access at bus stops. 
Um, so we, like I said, we try to do a city department, a development, and then also one community organization. The one we had this month was Real Abilities Film Festival, which kicks off next week. It runs for a week, and it showcases films about, about people with disabilities or written and produced and directed by people with disabilities. Yep. As a matter of fact, uh, you want to talk about the television show. We had somebody on from there on our television program, which we are both involved in for the city of Boston. That's right. That was our guest last week. It was Mara Bresnahan, who is who runs the Real Abilities Film Festival. And she talked about a lot of films that they're showing this year. And for anyone who hasn't heard of it or been to it, I would highly recommend it. I usually go to kick off one of the films every year. And a lot of times following the films, um, some of the people who either acted in the movie or directed it or produced it come to the event and they answer questions from the audience. Does, does your advising, when I left, Carl Richardson was chairman or acting chairman of the board. Is he still uh, the chairman of the advisory board at the moment? Or Wow, that's really a wake-up call because uh, <laughs> how long ago did you leave? Two years. Wow, so um, actually Carl was the acting chair up until about two months ago, but the board voted for a new chair, so our new chair is Jerry Boyd. I know that name. I can't place it, but I've heard that name. I yeah, he's name. a disability advocate. He's very active in the community in Boston. All right. And our vice chair is Elizabeth Dean Clower. She was formerly of the Cambridge Disability Commission, but she moved to Boston a year or two ago. So now she applied for our board, and the mayor appointed her, and the board and board voted her to be vice chair. Um, our secretary is Olivia Richard, and our treasurer, even though we really don't te- technically <laughs> don't oversee any money. funds, <laughs> is uh, Ducia. Okay. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Um, one of the pluses that you were able to add to your commission, which is not the advisory board, this is your regular staff, is to have somebody as an expert on architecture. Yes, I did. Um, that was one of my biggest priorities when I was appointed by Mayor Menino, because the previous commissioner was an architect himself. And like I said earlier, I come from an advocacy background and a public health background. I had no background in architecture. So one of the roles of my office is to review building plans, um, whether it's a private developer or public works doing a street or a sidewalk. So I really needed that expertise. So I went to Mayor Menino and I asked for a new position in my office. So he um, agreed with me. He, he was really astute and extremely supportive of me and my role. So he uh, allowed me to hire a new position of an architect. And then throughout the years, I believe when I started, how many staff did we have? Four oh, total? gosh, maybe five or six. I'm no, not, I think I we only had four. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Yep, it was you, right. Bob, One Eater, and me. Right, that's right. Right, so now we have seven full-time positions. So I was lucky enough to be able to add three positions. So right now I have two architects who work on all the architectural access. Um, there's myself as the commissioner. I have a chief of staff who basically, um, she oversees all the staff and she works on policy issues. She works on a lot of big picture issues and day-to-day issues. I have a staff support specialist who is basically the catch-all of our department. He does all the emails. He runs the front desk. He does, anytime we have a question, he researches it. And then we have two open positions. Uh, One is for an outreach engagement specialist and one is for a program manager to run the accessible parking program. Two things that always come up are placards. Explain to us about those and how people can get them. Yeah, my office gets a lot of calls about disability parking placards. For those of you listening, um, you probably have seen them. 
They're a little plastic tag that hangs in the windshield. It has the international symbol of accessibility on it, which is the blue square with the little white wheelchair symbol. And then it has a person's picture on it. And these allow people who have the placard to park in accessible parking spaces, what we used to call handicapped parking spaces. We now call them accessible parking spaces. So my office manages that program for the city. We have two types of, uh, we do, I should say, we have two ways we install these spaces. One is we look at the broad general areas, um, commercial areas, like by South Station, near downtown, uh, in the Fenway, in Kenmore, in Copley, um, in like Brighton business districts and Mattapan main streets. So we look at all the main commercial areas where there's retail and we always put in a number of accessible spots. And then the second way we put them in is if residents request them in front of their homes, there's an application process that they have to go through. And once it's approved, we install the spaces. Now that being said, people with a placard can park in any of those spaces. Uh, the people who apply for the spots in front of their home, they don't own the spaces and the, the business spaces obviously are open to anybody. Okay, now there's no fee. A lot of people used to call me and ask how much it cost. There's no fee, right? No, there's no fee for the placard or the parking space, but people should be aware that the Registry of Motor Vehicles, the state office, they're the ones that um, approve people for the placard. So once you have a placard, then you can apply for a space in front of your home. And my office does that. That's only a City of Boston program. Other neighborhoods, I mean, other cities and towns have that as well. I know Cambridge has an accessible parking program. Um, I'm sure other cities do too, but we only do signs for Boston residents. But the placards are good anywhere. Placards are good anywhere in the state and actually across the country because we also honor placards from other states and other countries in Boston. And you don't install, at least when I was there anyway, you didn't have temporary handicapped spots. Like you can get a temporary placard if you break your leg or something like that. No, one of the requirements of the program is that you have to have a disability for at least, um, I'm not sure if it's six months or one year, but we've had people request it for three months or so. But it just, you know, it doesn't make sense um, workload-wise and, um, you know, because a lot of times if it's a temporary disability, people may be um, ambulatory more quickly. So we have to, It would. we are so um, busy with this program, it would make a lot of work that we probably couldn't fulfill. Do you have enforcement powers? My office doesn't, but the all the parking in the city is enforced by the Boston Transportation Department. So what, what used to be called meter maids are now called parking control officers. So these officers patrol the streets every day. I'm sure everybody has seen them at some point. They give tickets. They um, ensure that uh, people, anyone who parks in an accessible space has a placard. So definitely be sure you don't forget to put your placard in the windshield because if they see a car without a placard, you will definitely get a ticket. Mm -hmm. All right. Winter is over, but nevertheless, uh, how did you change or, or reinstitute, I have trouble with big words, <laughs> reinstitute uh, rules as far as uh, snow removal and anything like that is concerned? Well, interestingly enough, uh, snow removal was one of the first things I worked on when I was appointed in 2010. And it's funny because that winter, we got almost no snow. 
<laughs> so that was a blessing. It let me ease into my role because snow is one of the biggest barriers for people with disabilities. We all know that, you know, it can linger for months. It can block curb ramps. It can block stairs and ramps. It's just, it's really tough to get around Boston in the winter. So what I did was I looked at the city snow ordinance. This is um, enacted by the Boston City Council, approved by the mayor. And what it says is that people are required to remove snow from their property within three hours of a snowstorm. So the thing that it didn't mention was curb ramps on the corners. So that was what the issue I had always run into. Okay, people shovel the sidewalk, but then you can't get off, off the sidewalk on the corner. So we worked um, all together with the city departments to change the ordinance to say that people who own property that abutted a corner were responsible for the curb ramp. That could be a homeowner, it could be a business. So the ordinance was updated and I think it ended up being passed in 2011. That being said, it's still very tough to not really so much enforce, but to just even get the word out there to let people know about it. Because I don't think it's that people wouldn't do it. A lot of people don't know about it. Mm -hmm. They don't know it's their responsibility. So that is definitely an ongoing challenge. So you should plan for that if you have any kind of budget. We, we would get so many calls. People say, oh, I can't afford snow removal. And believe me, I am a homeowner. I understand snow re removal is expensive. What I would always say to them is try to think of it like any other home expense, like heating or repairs or you know, doing landscaping that you just have to budget in every year. It's just a fact of life in Boston. Many times when I was there, we would get calls from people like nurses who would say, uh, I want to be able to go visit so-and-so in Boston. I'm a caregiver, um, but I'm afraid I'm going to get ticketed if I, if I park in a spot. And there had been established a partnership with the Boston Center for Independent Living. Is that still in existence, and how does that work? Well, again, this is another issue we hear about constantly. Uh, people who are caretakers, nurses, home health aides, uh, physical therapists, they have clients throughout the city, but a lot of times they can't park because of neighborhood residency restrictions. So the Boston Transportation Department works with home care agencies to give out a certain number of placards that allow agencies to give them to their staff to use in the neighborhoods. The thing we were running into was people with severe disabilities who needed PCAs, which don't really come to an agency. That's something that the people hire on their own. They didn't have any access to parking for the PCAs. So we did develop a pilot PCA parking program. And some of the requirements were that you had to get PCAs through BCIL, which is the Boston Center for Independent Living. That's a services, disability services organization in Boston. So if you got a PCA through that agency, then you could apply for a PCA parking space. One of the biggest requirements was that you had to state that you needed PCAs in order to remain living in the community because we really did this program to avoid people having to go to nursing homes because they couldn't get people to come work for them in their home. So it's a very small program. It's still in the pilot phase because we know that families do caretaking of elders. We know that um, there are a lot of different dynamics out there of people who need help. So we haven't really branched it out yet to, to look at the big picture, but that's something that we're definitely interested in doing. We also used to get calls about the ride. What's new with the ride, if anything? Well, 
I don't know if you've heard the news, but the ride just went up in price. Well, they just approved a, a price hike. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you didn't hear it? Mm -hmm. I knew that the MBTA had mm -hmm. raised their fares, but they said they weren't raising them for the disabled. They didn't raise the access pass, but they did raise the ride. I don't believe it kicked in yet, but um, so that that's something that the community is rallying against right now. So um, one thing that is fairly new, it's been going on for a year or so now, but people may know, not know about it, is that the ride is working on a pilot program with Uber and Lyft, which mm -hmm. allows people who are ride participants to use an Uber vehicle or a Lyft vehicle instead of the ride vehicle. And the T is doing this for a few reasons. First of all, they find that it's a lot cheaper to pay for a, a ride in an Uber or Lyft as opposed to getting um, a van and staffing that and paying for gas and the huge overhead. So they will reimburse um, people a certain amount of money to take Uber or Lyft. And I believe you participated in that when you worked with us, did you? I did, yes. And what was the reimbursement that they gave you? Oh, boy, I don't, I don't even remember, but I know it was a lot easier and uh, <clears throat> they were never late. Well, sometimes can happen. <laughs> I know. With the, with the ride, they can be very late, especially in the late part of the day. That's one of the biggest complaints we hear about the ride is that they're never on time. But with the Uber or Lyft, the, one of the big advantages is that you could call anytime you wanted. You could just call them if you wanted to go to a movie like tonight. With the ride, you had to schedule it at least 24 hours in advance, I believe. So this pilot is ongoing, and we don't know if it will turn over into a continued program. But right now, people can definitely find out about it if they're interested. In other programs about disabilities that I've heard, housing always seems to be the number one issue. Is that still true today, in your opinion? Oh, housing is tough. So many people are looking for housing, whether they have disabilities or families or um, are elders or, you know, anybody who just, you know, doesn't have that housing security we, we really try to work with. Um, the city has done a lot of work on homelessness. We're talking about doing an intervention for people who are homeless and also have disabilities. So we'll work on that in the next year. But um, one thing that we are doing was uh, when Mayor Walsh was appointed, he, he looked at the big picture of the city and he wanted to see where we would be in 10, 20, 30 years. So he developed a plan called Housing Boston 2030. And this plan looked at the current state of Boston's housing, the inventory, the stock. And also he tried to imagine working with experts in the fields what Boston would look like in 2030 and where we needed to go and how we could get there. So it was a huge, very, very detailed plan. Uh, one thing that I didn't see explicitly mentioned was people with disabilities. I saw they talked a lot about people who are older, elderly people who may have disabilities, but a lot of times, even though elders and people with disabilities have the same needs, they don't qualify for the same programs. So I asked uh, our housing chief, Sheila Dillon, if we could work on putting together a disability commission, uh, a disability housing task force to look at issues of housing for people with disabilities across the spectrum, whether they were infants or children or families or individuals, but not just as a category of elderly. So she supported that work, and to this day we meet every month to figure out what we want to work on. Going back to uh, transportation for, for a second, we've talked about Uber and we've talked about the ride. How about the regular cab industry in Boston? How accessible are their cabs now? 
Well, we worked for a long time with the accessible cabs. They're called WAVE cabs, for anyone who doesn't know, W-A-V, which stands for Wheelchair Accessible Vehicle. And the WAVE cabs um, are built to hold a wheelchair. There are medallions uh, for 100 WAVE cabs in the city out of the roughly 2,200 cabs that exist. So the WAVE cabs are required to have certain dimensions that allow people in wheelchairs to, you know, come right in, roll up the ramp, and be taken to the location. When I started with the commission, there was definitely some, some there had been some lack of oversight from the on the taxi uh, the taxi hackney commission. Uh, I don't know how it happened. I don't know when it happened. But when I got here, the majority of wave cabs were not accessible. So we did a lot of work, and over the last seven or eight years, we've brought over half of them into full ADA compliance, which is a really big victory when you think of the fact that Uber came on the scene about three or four years ago and basically almost wiped out the taxi industry. <laughs> yeah, they are a little bit cheaper than regular cabs, I have to admit. Now, one of the things that I've also heard you discuss is emergency preparedness uh, in the office of OEM, or Officer of Emergency Management. Tell us about that, if you can, and about if you have a disability, how to prepare for emergency preparedness if there's a hurricane or a flood or whatever. Well, this is really good timing because my office is giving a training on emergency preparedness on May 21st at 1.30 in Boston City Hall. So if anyone's interested in, in attending, please call my office and we can tell you about it. But basically, OEM is the city department that deals with emergencies. And people think emergencies as being like the Boston Marathon, which obviously that was a huge emergency. But when you think of it, like look at the marathon, look at how uber prepared we were. I mean, so few people died with bombings right there at the finish line that it just goes to show how prepared we were. But um, OEM can work on anything from a fire or a flood to some natural occurring, naturally occurring disaster like um, a snowstorm, a blizzard, it could be severe rain. Um, like I said, it could be anything, a fire at uh, a public housing building, a, a fire at a private residence. They are always ready to be mobilized and activated, and they really take care of business as far as like getting into the home, getting people out of the home, getting them shelter to a different home. They take all those things very seriously, and they're very prepared. And we work with them. We, we have a, a great um, cyclical role in that we train them and they train us. So, for instance, I give input on things like emergency shelters. We worked on a whole ADA audit to make sure the shelters were all accessible. And then my chief of staff, Jessica Doonan, is working with them on what they call extreme temperature planning, which is if Boston got really hot or really cold, how do we serve people with disabilities and um, all kinds of initiatives like that. Now, one of the things that, that you keep hearing about is, and I quote, a go bag, unquote. Tell us about that and how that's different from maybe a person that doesn't have a disability. Well, it's interesting because myself having a disability, you just know there are so many extra layers of things that you have to do to plan. So most people with disabilities have extra medication they'd have to figure out medical supplies like wheelchairs or dressings or, you know, just anything having to do with helping their medical condition. And then um, they have to figure out where they can get into if it's accessible. So 
There's a whole list of things, and that's just people in wheelchairs. If you have diabetes, you'd have to figure out how to get your insulin. If you were blind, you'd have to figure out wayfinding. And if you have a service dog, uh, people who are deaf need to figure out how they can communicate with people. So there are a bunch of issues for people with disabilities. But I will say the city does a great job on really um, understanding this fact and you know, getting the resources out to the people who need them. You have other events that you have during the year, such as civic engagement, um, ADA. Uh, there's an event uh, where people can come and they, they shadow workers. In other words, they follow city hall workers around. Take a few minutes and talk about some of those. Well, one of the big things I wanted to do when I was appointed was to re-engage the community in my work. So one big thing we did, as we talked about earlier, was the advisory board. But I also wanted to um, bring residents in and, and just really get to know them and let them get to know that, that my office was here and that we work for them. You know, everyone's pack, tax dollars pay my salary, my staff salary. So we definitely want to get the word out that you let us know what we need and we're here for you. So the first thing I did was I instituted a community forum, which is basically a listening session. It's a listening session in that we invite community members to come up. Um, we usually have between one and 200 people. It's happening this year on June 28th at the Suffolk University Law School up on Tremont Street. So everybody's welcome to attend, bring family, bring friends, bring anybody. So the way it works is I kick it off and we do a quick report from my board the 13-member uh, uh, residents who live in Boston. So they give a quick report, and then basically myself, my staff, and my board members are all available to answer questions to the public about things that they have questions on, whether it's a Hubway bike dock or it's something about, you know, this office here, the, um, the um, Architectural Access Board. It could be the Mass Commission for the Blind. It could be uh, any questions they have, and we try to answer them. The... Pioneers, the people that fought for ADA, which is going to be pretty soon 30 years old, retired. It happens. Mm. The torch has to be passed to other people. Um, and this is, I don't mean it to be a rough question, but how concerned are you that they are as qualified as some of those who were involved in, in many protests that got the ADA passed? Well, that's an issue that a lot of uh, rights-based movements struggle with. Um, things like the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, they did so much work back in the day, along with disability advocates, that younger generations growing up have it, have it much easier. And I don't mean to say that it's easy for anybody, but you know we have much more rights today than we had back in the 50s. So people can grow up and not get involved in these movements and still have a good life. Back when I was younger and other people were working on these movements, if you didn't get involved and you didn't advocate for yourself, nobody was going to help you out. So, you know, it's a good and a bad thing. It's great that we have so much improved accessibility, but we always have to remind the young generation that, you know, not only was it a lot of, a lot of work to get here, it's going to take a lot of work to maintain the rights we have and not take a step back by losing any rights. So we always try to engage advocates and young advocates. We work with Easter Sales, who has a youth mentoring program. We work with Partners for Youth with Disabilities. We work with a lot of agencies that work with younger folks with disabilities. And one thing that I didn't get to mention yet, uh, as far as events, 
was every year on City Hall Plaza, we have a big celebration on ADA Day or close to ADA Day, which is the day that the ADA was passed and became law. So we do this every year. We invite advocates to come out, young people, just for a chance to meet, say hello, greet, and um, just get to know about the disability community. I, in, an, in an interview that I heard with you, you said, uh, and I quote, it's necessary for people to pick up the torch and fight. Is it still necessary after all this time? Absolutely, because look at what we just talked about with um, increases in the ride. Uh, there was a federal law that was being floated last year. It hasn't passed yet. We hope it won't. And that was um, that would have taken a lot of power away from the ADA federal law. So we definitely need people to be ongoingly vigilant and speaking out about rights for people with disabilities. All right. In the few minutes that we have left, I will give you the floor. If there's anything you would like to say or add to what you already have, the time is yours. All righty. Let's see. Where should I begin? At the beginning. <laughs> okay. So um, <laughs> another event that I, I worked really hard to bring forth was it's called a Civic Engagement Day for People with Disabilities. Mm -hmm. And this event takes place in the fall. And we invite people to come into City Hall Plaza, uh, into City Hall. We do this event because we want to engage young people. Again, it's all about young people, but also other people who may be disenfranchised or disengaged from the community to come into City Hall. Um, they can see all the new access in the council chamber. They can meet their city councilor, hopefully meet with Mayor Walsh. He comes to a lot of the events. They get to meet their neighborhood liaison in the Office of Neighborhood Services. Each neighborhood in Boston has a staff person dedicated to work just on their issues. They can meet people from the Elections Commission, register to vote. They can try out the Automark machine, which is a machine that helps um, people who have visual disabilities be able to vote independently. They can try out a mock voting booth so they know what it's like to vote if they hadn't voted before. And it's just a great, great afternoon where they can really feel immersed in local government and just feel like they're a part of it, and then we want them to become a part of it. They can learn to uh, apply for a board or a commission, not just the Disability Commission, but maybe they're interested in arts and culture or they're interested in history and architecture. So they can apply for uh, boards that have openings. So this is an event we really look forward to. But one of the biggest pieces of my work, too, has been with the Mass Rehab Commission. That is the state vocational agency that works to get people with disabilities back to work. And I have a very fond relationship with them because I was actually a client of Mass Rehab. They helped me get my first job while I was in college. They helped me get an internship. So we work at Mass Rehab to do a series of summer internships for people with disabilities. Um, we usually try to take 10 Boston residents who have a disability, and we bring them into City Hall every summer uh, right after July 4th, and we place them in different departments and they do work for six weeks, which is paid for by Mass Rehab. And after the end of those six weeks, they can apply for a job in the department they've been with. If they have openings, we'll look at the city's website and potentially apply for a job in another department. And then really just take away all the experience and the, so far, positive reviews and recommendations. So um, that's another great event that we look forward to and a way that we can, um, you know, really get the cycle going of bringing people in you know, working with them, hoping they're advocates and going to work on the issues that we, we hope they will. And then, you know, placing them into the right positions, whether it's a job or on a board or, 
you know, just um, volunteering or even just attending our meetings. ADA Day is when this year? It is Tuesday, July 23rd. Okay. And from when to when? Usually it's from 12 to 2. 12 to, oh, okay, because once and, before it was 11 to 3. So. Yeah, and you were our esteemed MC for several years. <laughs> yeah. Ken, with his wonderful voice, would always that, kick it off and that close and it off. the Big Apple Circus. Yep. I know. Yeah. I hope you can come this year. And I did say that the Big Apple is coming back, but not to City Hall. Not to Boston. No. no. Where yeah. is it coming? Do you know? You know what? I heard a commercial for it a week ago, and I even said to my wife, I said, geez, I used to... I used to be the ringmaster. Yeah, I think it's the hat. I think it's the North Shore. <laughs> but yeah, it was on City Hall Plaza for many years. I wonder if they still have the Circus of the Senses. I, I'm sure they do. I hope so. Well, again, I thank you very much for coming in. I know what a busy schedule you have, and ladies and gentlemen, this lady ain't a bad boss to work for. So <laughs> keep that in the back of your head somewhere. And I thank you very much, Commissioner. And that will do it for this edition of. City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.